and welcome to the Sadaka Cast, where two rabbis from different generational backgrounds come together to discuss social justice issues from a Jewish perspective. I'm your moderator, Joe Blaubert, and with me are my two co-hosts, Rabbi Jack Paskoff and Rabbi Sam Yolen. Before we get started, why don't you two introduce yourselves to the audience and explain what drew you to the becoming rabbis in the first place? I'm in my 34th year as a rabbi, so I've been doing this for a while within the reform movement. Joe, it's an interesting question, what drew me to become a rabbi? Uh, it goes back to a conversation I had with my mother in 10th grade, uh, and usually that's a time in our lives when we're blaming our mothers for everything, um, but I'm blaming my mother for my being a rabbi today. At that point in my life, I was spending a lot of time at the synagogue. I was involved in the youth group. All my friends were from the temple. They weren't from my high school at that point. Uh, lots of different school districts, as a matter of fact. Uh, I was an aide in the religious school. Uh, we all went to services. All the kids went to services on Friday nights because growing up in New York where you couldn't get your driver's license until you were 17, uh, we were relying on our parents who said, well, if you wanna see each other, we're going to services. So that's where I met with my friends. My mother finally said to me one day, do you realize that you spend all of your time at the temple? Did you ever think of becoming a rabbi? Uh, and so honestly, God and Torah took a backseat to community and friends. And my mother was the one who really launched me in this direction. Probably not what a lot of sages of our tradition would want to hear, but that's exactly the way I ended up where I am today. Do you find that that influences how you think about being a rabbi? Do you find yourself more drawn to the community um, aspect than maybe more of the, the sagely thing? Or is it a 50-50 kind of deal? It, it was for a long time. I had a crisis uh, in about my third year of rabbinical school where I said, if I'm not into this for Torah and God, is this really where I should be? I can have Jewish friends in a Jewish circle without being a rabbi. Uh, and a dear friend of mine gave me a book at that time, um, some tales of Hasidism from uh, Martin Buber. And uh, that really set me on the right path where I can strike a balance uh, among God, Torah community, uh, which is a typical um, triad as we look at Jewish life, God, Torah, and Israel. So I, I think I'm where I'm supposed to be and doing a decent job of balancing all of those. Uh, Sam. That's, I just wanna say that's beautiful. I'm, I'm fighting the urge to, uh, you know, to moderate what Rabbi Paskoff is saying because I feel a very a kinship to what, what he's talking about. And um, you know, a different flavor, maybe a, um, a more recent flavor. But I, I definitely had a number of experiences where I, I said to myself, "Am I really qualified to lead this people?" You know, and I, and as soon as you have those feelings, you know, it makes you humanize Moses all the more. So, you know, I think it's a sign of legitimacy. My beginning to Judaism was at first coerced. You know, nobody likes going to religious school. Um, nobody likes. Uh, skipping out on travel soccer or other, you know, weekend plans for, uh, for tales in the shul. And there was always talk in my family of, of famous rabbis back in the day. Uh, it turns out um, there were some famous rabbis and my parents really committed me to business school. I don't want to, you know, get into the whole, the whole Megillah here, uh, but I have 
a number of siblings. All of them are engineers. All of them are Ivy League trained. And I was the black sheep. I was more interested in poetry and writing. And I refused to, um, to take a lot of classes in high school. And then in college, I, I went to one of the best schools I could get to, which was American University, the same school that Rabbi Pascoff's son went to. We were just missing each other. I actually didn't uh, associate with AEPI because I, I did not want to be Jewish at that time in my life. And it was the place for Jews. I've always had a strong aversion towards elitism, which in a lot of ways has pulled me away from tradition because there's such a high regard for intelligence and for knowledge and achievement um, that kind of made me sick. But I was in school for finance and economics and about a year and a half into college, right in the wake of the housing bubble crisis, uh, I came to the specific opinion, which I'm willing to discuss with anyone, uh, that our economy is, is a Ponzi scheme built off of exploiting fossil fuels. And that most likely my generation and subsequent generations will have to pay a very hefty price tag for a lot of the policies and um, exploitations of the previous generations. And that revelation was mired in depression and apathy and upset. And I remember starting to stockpile goods in my college, uh, in my college room. This is, I'd moved off campus. So it was an apartment. It wasn't a dorm. And there was a bleak two-year stretch where I did not know what I wanted to do. I didn't really have God in my life. I had memories of, of summer camp and, and a synagogue youth group that I had been, you know, again, coerced into doing. And there was linked to God, this idea of hope and miracle. And I needed that concept in my life at that time to get through what were some of the darkest days that I had experienced. Had a very amazing, strong Christian farmer that I worked for during those two years I was working on a farm. Um, he was like the only employer that he, that would you know have me in my depression. Um, and he convinced me that people are capable of many amazing, great things. And one day at the farm, he pulled his Jewish friends together and he said, get this kid into synagogue and get him his college degree because he's going to be a rabbi. And at that time, uh, the only place where these ideas fit were synagogues or places where they take anyone, you know, no matter how ridiculous sounding uh, those kids will be. I finished up my undergrad at a local college um, and I applied to the only rabbinical seminary that I knew, which was HUC. And I was rejected very quickly, flat out, despite doing all their all the requirements to get in. I have distinct memories of going to these you know, events where they were breeding uh, applicants and they would put me all the way at the end by like the no contest people. And I could see all the, you know, Ivy leaguers going, you know, front and center to the big donors. And then they would cleverly like hide me. And I don't think they realized uh, the upbringing that I had or the level of acuity that I developed from the last 31 years of my life. It was a source of contention. And I said, well, that's it. I won't be a rabbi. But I found a seminary that uh, that fit me actually even better. My own theology is uh, always under construction. And I found a, a seminary called the Academy for Jewish, the American, uh, the Academy for Jewish Religion, AJR, I'm, you know, repping their sweatshirt right now. And they're in, they're in Yonkers. Uh, they had moved from Riverdale to Yonkers and they were mainly a second career school. So most of the people I went, uh, I went to matriculate with were former lawyers, doctors, accountants, professionals who had become empty nesters and said to themselves, this is my time to learn about God. Uh, I wasn't an empty nester. You know, I just 
kind of had a false start and a quarter life crisis. Um, but I was able to uh, get the real help that I need in terms of psychological, you know, spiritual, um, and social. And um, every year I went to school, I'd say, well, this is the year the economy is going to implode. And, you know, it's a good thing I know how to farm from that farmer. And every year that I went through, you know, turned into another year and another year and another year. By my last year, it was real and I had to find a job. And I was very lucky that there were a number of congregations that I had worked for as a rabbinic intern or as a associate that offered me a job. I'd, I'd um, pressed palms with some pretty important people and um, I was not short of, of job offers. So I came to this small hamlet of Lepnin, as the locals call it, uh, which is approximately 20 minutes east of Hershey Park. It's about 45 minutes north of Lancaster. It is essentially what used to be cornfields and dairy farms. And the synagogue president that I met came from the same shtetl that my great-grandparents came from, Ekaterinoslav. Uh, so when I met the individuals here, it felt like home. And I took a look at the, the giant building and I um, met a couple of the young people who were really working hard to keep the lights on in this building. And I had this sensation that whereas all these other uh, synagogues would really benefit from me being there, this synagogue might go under if I didn't go there. I felt so connected to this place that I, I could not stand to see such a historic Jewish presence be, you know, be obliterated. Now that I've been on this pulpit for a year, for three and a half years, I could see that this is a microcosm of, of larger America. There's many historic synagogues and many amazing towns across the country um, that because of the way industry has changed, those places are, are going by the wayside. But when I first got here, I, I really felt a strong pull, you know, and I still do to those individuals. There's a millennial saying, you fake it till you make it. I love what I get to do. I love the people I get to serve. I love that I can connect with you and, and Rabbi Jack tens of miles away. Good. So our very first topic in our very inaugural episode here is the topic of homelessness. Um, homelessness is a growing problem uh, in the United States as the cost of housing keeps growing uh, unchecked. So what does the Jewish faith and Jewish framework of ideas say about homelessness. And I wanted to ask you guys, and I want to start you guys off. What is the Jewish idea of charity? How do Jews traditionally look at charity? Now, Jack, we'll start with you here. We don't have an idea of charity. We have a word that often gets translated as charity, uh, but we don't have a sense of charity. We have tzedakah uh, from the Hebrew root tzedek, which means it's just the name of this podcast, uh, the tzedakah again. Um, so uh, one of the things I often point out to people, if they've ever seen any version of Fiddler on the Roof, they know that in the very first scene, we're introduced to the characters in Anatevka, and one of the characters is Nachum the Beggar. And if you remember the scene, Nachum the Beggar walks around, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. And uh, one of the townspeople says, Nachum, here's one kopeck. And Nachum says, one kopeck, last week you gave me two kopecks. And the man says, well, Nachum, I had a bad week. Nachum says, you had a bad week, why should I suffer? Which from an American perspective sounds audacious, 
obnoxious and gets a laugh. From a Jewish perspective, it's really a, a subtle reminder that this is about justice and not about the sudden outpouring of my heart. That idea of justice, which in the book of Deuteronomy, we are taught to pursue. And whenever I read that passage, I always say, uh, we're not to admire it from afar. We're not to wait for it. We are to pursue it. Now, oftentimes giving tzedakah is, results in the same as giving charity. We put money in a box, we send the check away to an organization, but the motivation is very different. And the sense that I am doing something more than helping to support someone, but I'm helping to restore a sense of justice to an individual who has been wronged perhaps, and to a community that has gone adrift, that speaks to me much deeper than any notion of charity. This brings up a follow-up question here. When pursuing that justice, how far into that pursuit of justice should you give to the point where only you are comfortable or should you give to the point where it might even make you uncomfortable, right? Like where is, is there a, a limit to that? Yeah, so, um... You know, tzedakah is a, looks very different to uh, the different circumstances that you find yourself in. The earliest remembrance I have of tzedakah is, you know, after my bar mitzvah, the first thing my parents had me do is tally up all the, you know, all the gifts I had received and make sure I clipped off 10 to 15% for a specific, you know, cause. But just to become bar mitzvah, I needed to visit an old age home and get to know the people and serve there for a couple months. So when, uh, when it comes to society instituting tzedakah, those things are going to be very political. You know, the Tzadusis, which comes from the word tzedakah, was a political party in Israel that had convinced individuals, you know, the way to get into the world to come is to do these things. And there was a political issue there. There was a number of Jewish parties that had um, turned in against each other because they might not have believed about those things. I think tzedakah is something that has to come from the heart, which means you need to develop the skills to empathize with people. In a society that's lost that skill, you can't really access where tzedakah needs to go or how it needs to be needs to be given. You know, I'm so turned off when I go to the supermarket and I go to check myself out at one of those digital, you know, kiosks, and at the end it says. You know, would you like to donate the, the remainder of your dollar to, you know, save the poor or something? Um, because I, I know that the money should go to people who are there checking us out rather than to machines that, you know, support a giant global corporation. You know, part of the idea of tzedakah is that you give people gainful employment in order that they don't need to be beggars. So all these, all these things, you know, um, get really convoluted. Uh, I think that without tzedakah, we would destroy ourselves because there's nothing more, uh, more debilitating than poverty. And tzedakah works to, to give integrity and, um, and the, the necessities of life to those individuals who would otherwise uh, resort to violence or other terrible means. So it's a necessary institution. We do what we can. 
Uh, although I will say again, from my prior training in economics, it's really hard to right all the wrongs in a society that might have institutions that are foundationally bankrupt. And that is going to stress uh, and overexert the compassion and empathy reserves of spiritual people. And that's gonna disproportionately fall on some shoulders more than other shoulders. So we need to be very clever and, and tactful as to how we advocate for tzedakah and what exactly tzedakah looks like. You know, I wanna get back to a, a question you referred to and that is, is there a limit? There's a, a line in the 19th chapter of the book of Leviticus, the holiness code as we call it. And it appears elsewhere. It's a notion that appears elsewhere that tells us that we have to leave a corner or an edge of the field unharvested so the poor can come and glean in our fields, take what they need. And one of the pieces that I often refer people to is the fact that it doesn't tell us how big an edge or how big a corner. Is it a single stalk? Is it symbolic? How far into the field does it extend? And actually the Mishnah, uh, the work of the oral law and later rabbinic codes deal at length with this. Uh, we're taught that we're not to impoverish ourselves by giving to others. And intentionally, there is no measure. That elsewhere in the Mishnah, it says, you know, there are certain things we're told to do, and there is no measure given. So how do I know how much of myself I have to give? I think we all know people who can afford to give more than they do. And I hate looking into other people's bank accounts. But I think um, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for anyone else. I think we do have a tendency to, I have a tendency to make those kinds of judgments. Uh, and then we know the people who are constantly giving of themselves. And we might know that they really can't afford it, but they continue to give. I, I want to respond to something uh, Sam said also, and, th and that was this notion of uh, having it come from the heart because this may be a place where, where we differ. Uh, I don't care if it comes from the heart or not, just do it, right? I'll steal that line, who's it, Nike? Just do it, right? It, do it because it has to be done. Do it because it's the right thing to do. Do it because God commands it. So I might find Nachum the beggar to be totally obnoxious, but I have an obligation to him even if I don't like him and my heart is not so moved. So I'll, um, you know, I'll give my two kopecks on that, uh, which is, you know, there's so many charities in this world. If you don't like Nasa and the Schnorrer, you know, I'm sure you could find Hazon or a different, you know, charity to give those kopecks to. Um, and I think one of the, um, one of the debilitations of, the access that technology provides us and the information age provides us is that charities are oftentimes fungible in the sense of you can, rather than you know, give to your local diner, you can give to a, a national you know, organization or something. So I, I would never encourage someone you know, not to give, especially when, uh, when society is sustained by tzedakah, uh, but you know, where they give. You know, I have individuals in my community who only give to Jewish organizations. And I have individuals in the community who go beyond that. And I get this, I derive the same sense of joy seeing the names on the donor sheet of 
the local, you know, family services group as say, you know, the Jewish organizations when we need, you know, a new Torah or a new Torah cover here in the, in the synagogue. Um, but actually I wanted to bring up, being as this is an intergenerational meet, I wanted to bring up a story that I used to give myself, um, you know, integrity when I was literally living off my parents through rabbinical school, which is that there's a story that comes from the Zohar about a king and he has a friend and he brings his friend from all the way on the field to the kingdom and he gives his friend everything and he constantly spoils his friend and he keeps asking his friend, aren't you having a great time? Aren't you enjoying this? Isn't this the best? And the friend says, yeah, it's great, but I just wish I could be feeling like I deserve it and not that it was coming from our friendship. And when I uh, lived with my parents and I was um, saving for what I'm doing now, I had a really hard time with not feeling worthy because a lot of stuff was being done for me. And as I bring up that story, I'm thinking of uh, the massive imbalances of wealth between those in the younger generation and the older generation and feeling like my parents at my age could have afforded a house with a non-college degree. And I am going to struggle to pay rent, you know, at a time where I have, you know, more than a college degree. And so the idea of how this society is working to support those who are, you know, more impoverished is one that's going to reconcile the king and his friend in terms of generational wealth imbalances. And I don't know exactly how that tzedakah works out, um, but I, I do know that without some of the multi-billionaires who are millennials and younger, the, the demographics and class distinction and breakdown is very disproportionate. And a society like that produces some pretty tense, you know, socioeconomic and geopolitical periods. So I think tzedakah, first and foremost, for those people who might not feel drawn to give via their heart, should be afraid of what happens in a society when there's such wealth discrepancies, and they should give maybe out of fear. You know, when I was uh, in rabbinical school and college, uh, getting my undergraduate degree, uh, student loans were cheap. Interest rates were significantly higher than where they are now, but we were able to rely on the fact that we'd be able to pay them off pretty easily. And my generation was the last that was really the recipient of this notion that every generation expected their children to do better. Can I ask what year that was? If I don't mind dating okay. you, I'm sorry. I apologize That's for dating fine. you. But... I was ordained in 1988. I graduated high school in 1979. So for historical background of anybody who would be listening, these are about the years of what's called the Voltershock. Um, it was a system where in order to crush uh, the inflation that had occurred um, in the wake of Carter's policies and the OPEC um, dispute that they raised in um, they raised interest rates on on federal loans astronomically and then the incoming Reagan administration uh, was selling off federal assets in the in the way of federal programs like Fannie Mae uh, and Freddie Mac. They were privatizing them, which um, led largely to, uh, among many other things, right, and defunded HUD, um, the Housing um, and Urban Development Department, um, defunded public housing, um, and a lot of this led to um, the economic state of the 80s. And it was a ticking time bomb that we see as a result today. 
again, sorry to interrupt. I just thought that that is a bit of a historical context as to what was going on financially might work. So carry on, Jack. Just for, to respond to that for a second, when I was in rabbinical school, that's when uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner, um, his second famous book came out. It was called When All I've Ever Wanted Isn't Enough. It was in the mid 80s. It was the one of the TV series at the time was, uh, what was it called, 30 something or, or some, right? It was yuppie culture at its best. People were making their first million by the time they were 40. And then they were saying, but what's going to give my life meaning? I have all of this, and yet there's this incredible void in my life. Kushner based a lot of that book on the biblical book of Ecclesiastes. King Solomon has it all. And he's still asking, where's the meaning in my life? Uh, in reflecting, Sam, on, on what you were talking about and this issue of generational wealth and how it's not getting to generations younger than mine, uh, I want to take our word, Sadaka, and return to that form tzedek for a moment. Because perhaps our obligation now is not as much about financial support, not minimizing that in any way, but perhaps it is about the pursuit of tzedek in other ways. I need to be advocating for a living wage. The fact that minimum wage has not been increased legally in how long, it, on the federal level at least. Now the past year has taught us that most of the businesses that said we can't survive paying a living wage, guess what? They've learned to survive paying a living wage because it was face that or go out of business. I will never understand why there isn't a cost of living increase built into minimum wage laws. Why does it have to wait for an argument every 10 or 12 years and have it never catch up to the place where it can be a living wage? This is the advocacy. This is the pursuit of tzedek in a very different way, in a very different forum. Uh, advocating for fair housing, for different vulnerable populations. When I first moved to Lancaster, there was a debate among the three county commissioners about fair housing for people who were gay or lesbian. And the only dissenting vote of the three commissioners was someone who had a family member who had just come out. This is the kind of pursuit of tzedek that takes place in a different arena. And it's something that we need to be focusing our attention on precisely because of the economic injustices that even donations can't correct, regardless of how large those donations might be. Uh, so those were um, very good points. And um, when it comes to Sadaka, um, you know, dignified wages and the ability to afford, you know, a roof, four walls, three meals a day, hot meals. Those are the things that, that our civilization should aspire to. From the classical economics standpoint that I was trained in college, when you arbitrarily raise the, you know, the cost of labor, um, you, know, you do put businesses out of business. And part of that means that the businesses will go overseas to where labor is cheaper. 
unless you do something with the ability to import and export, which is tariffs, subsidies, or, or energy prices. So I don't think it's, you know, no, one of these things can't be look at, looked at in a, in a vacuum. Um, these, these are systemic things. You know, uh, even further, I think when you look at over the last couple of years, um, as we've seen, the prices of certain goods have gone up, you know, considerably. But I, I wouldn't mind, and I'm speaking again from a place of privilege, I wouldn't mind paying an extra 20% when I go to the supermarket if I know that the workers at the supermarket, my neighbors here in town, are going to have their needs met and they're going to be good, peaceful, upstanding citizens. I mean, there's no guarantee there, but the hope is that, you know, my quality of life will improve as my neighbor's quality of life will improve. It's not that the scarcity mindset of, you know, maybe the tragedy of the commons that Adam Smith writes about, where if they have less, I have more. You know, I, I think the idea is that they could have more and I could have more too, but some real effects of, you know, of the price of labor are when you raise the price of labor, unless, you know, you have energy levels that prevent, you know, worker exploitation, you're going to see like the race to the bottom that, that we had over the era of globalization in the nineties. And, and I was a mere infant at that period of time, I learned about that from textbooks. And I had to question why there are good sides of town and what, where the manufacturing base go. And I think actually coming to Lebanon here has really helped me put a face to the you know, closed industries and the families that are affected uh, by, the, by, the, you know, by the rust belt. Because in my, in my wealthy suburb, in my upbringing, I was not rubbing shoulders with individuals who were smart, good, God-fearing people who just were down on their luck. I was around a lot of business professionals and, um, and other individuals in my own liberal bubble. I'd like to bring it back to the concept of homelessness and the government itself tries to intercede. Often there is a discussion about means testing, right? The amount that someone can make or if they are on drugs or if they're you know, drunk or like the, the classic idea of the panhandler really is a secretly very wealthy or drug, you know, people are going to spend this money on drugs. I think Reagan really popularized this concept in the 80s, right? The vilification of the poor. So when we talk about Judaism, right, and how Jews are supposed to, with quotes, supposed to look at these problems, is there a concept of a deserving poor and an undeserving poor that we should pursue this justice or charity for? Should we be excluding some um, or should we instead not consider that at all? Um, Sam, I don't know exactly the geography of where your congregation is in Lebanon. Uh, we're an inner city congregation in Lancaster. Uh, and interestingly, going back to my student days, I have only served inner city congregations, which means that we get a fair bit of street traffic. And, and I do confess, Joe, in, in response to your question, that there was a time when a guy came to the door every couple of weeks and about three times in a row, he told me about his uncle who died and he needed to get to Harrisburg to get him and he needed a train ticket. And I finally said to him one day, 
in utter frustration, how many uncles do you have in Harrisburg? Uh, I'm not proud of that, but I, I confess to that. One of the things in Judaism that I, I truly appreciate is a Talmudic passage. Don't ask me for the exact citation. Uh, but it says, if a poor person comes and says, I need clothing, we dig into their backgrounds to find out if they really do. But if a poor person comes and says, I need food, I'm hungry, we don't ask questions. So that fundamental idea of someone comes and says, I'm hungry, we feed them. Is that a matter of deserving poor, undeserving poor? Uh, it is a matter, I think, of acknowledging that there are limited resources. Uh, I don't know if I give someone a little bit of money. And, and by the way, for a time, I used to give some money and then I stopped and I started giving supermarket gift cards, which could be traded or sold or whatever. Uh, but at least I felt like I was doing something. And at this point, I've gone one step beyond that. I direct people to community agencies that do this work because they know who's who in the community more than I do. Uh, no one wants to be taken advantage of, but we do have an obligation to feed those who are hungry. And I will contribute to those organizations and allow them to do the legwork of deciding how to best allocate those funds. And before you might jump in, I just want to follow up because I think that there's an interesting idea here. Why is there that distinction between food and clothing? Is is it this, this concept of the preservation of life that we are observing with food that we are not observing with clothing? Or how is this? Is there an answer to this? I'm not aware of the Talmud making a specific distinction, but it does seem to me that food is life-saving. Clothing might be too, if it's as cold as it is outside today and has been for the past week. Uh, dignified clothing, to specify, as we are recording this in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, um, it has been about 25 degrees for the last two weeks. Lower, right? Interestingly, we have an organization in Lancaster County called the Lancaster County Food Hub. If anyone local is listening to this, it used to be the Council of Churches. Now it is a secular organization. But the two programs they run, interestingly, the two primary programs, are a food bank and a clothing bank. For a long time, it was workforce clothing, but now that more and more people are working remotely, it's not all on workforce clothing anymore. They used to have a very interesting program, which I understand has gone out of existence. I'd love to see it come back, called Wheels to Work. Someone could get a bicycle from them, or in rare cases, a car. What are the obstacles? What keeps someone from getting a job so that they can feed and clothe themselves? So maybe the Talmud is making a false distinction here. And Sam used the idea before of looking at things systemically. And I think we have to look at a bigger picture here. Sam, where are you at on this? Is there a concept of a deserving poor and an undeserving poor? Should we observe these, these differences? 
So in, in true rabbinic fashion, I'm going to like rearrange your question and ask myself a similar question and I'll answer that question instead. I, I, think, um, I think we need to first acknowledge that both Rabbi Jack and I are heads of institutions. And when people come to us for charity, um, you know, we are speaking on behalf of our sometimes denomination of Judaism, sometimes the conglomerate of individuals we serve. We are given, you know, a discretionary fund to make donations based upon where we deem appropriate. All those things are true. So when we look at the rabbinic injunction, maybe to let the poor eat amongst your home in Passover, for instance, you know, we're not actually opening our home to have anyone in the inner city or not just come in to sit with us. Um, if we did, there might be a security concern, uh, or there might be other concerns, as we maybe saw a couple of weeks ago in, uh, in Texas with the individual who was invited in for a cup of tea, and he ended up holding up the rabbi and three other congregants. Uh, so um, that is, of course, uh, speaking from our institutional background, um, I've had a similar experience with, with men with you know uncles who pass away. Um, there's a man here who had come to a number of services and um, you know, and I think I've, uh, I've helped him in and out of prison now for as long as I've been here. Um, and I, I don't turn him away, but I do not give him a blank check. I say, you know, what do you need this for? You know, how is this going to contribute to your ability to provide for yourself? And I, I, you know, uh, this is someone who's proven to me that his heart's in the right place, but he just, you know, maybe I'm a sucker you know, but the amount of money that I'm giving him in terms of goods, whether it's food or, or resources to be and live a Jewish life um, or a bus ticket here or there, the resources I'm giving to him is not putting my community at a disservice or disadvantage. Uh, it's not eating into a large part of our budget. It's something that, you know, I feel confident that his engagement with God in this house is being looked at on the whole. Uh, in, a, in a beautiful way. So I, I, I give. Um, but the, uh, the personal obligation for tzedakah, for, uh, for charity, um, is actually inserted in every Jewish ritual. Growing up in a reform household, if we did Shabbat at all, it was just, you know, you light the candles and then you go to the movies or something. But as I started to develop and deepen my practice, I was guests at individuals' homes where before Shabbat candles were lit, they passed around a tzedakah box and everyone put something in the box. And I remember thinking about how beautiful that was. And specifically, there's a line in the Berkatama zone where you whisper, you know, that my, you know, my father should never beg. You know, I should never see a beggar, you know, ask for money. And the, these ideas that you would maximize some parts of the religion and minimize other parts of the religion and take a communal and personal obligation to put money in your tzedakah box before morning minion, before Shabbat, it reifies just how connected to God those acts are. I think the most difficult thing that I had to deal with in, in school for finance was knowing that we had a currency system that said, in God we trust, and yet it was so not going to the places that God needed it to go. It's on us to do that. So that's where I see the personal obligation and I think if we did open our homes to the poor, it would affect us differently in a more real way. It wouldn't put the onus on maybe the institution leaders to distribute the charities, although you're actually not allowed to move to a town unless there is a, uh, a distribution of charity. 
Uh, so it would make it more personal, but it would also allow people to have individuals in their homes that might judge them. And I think it's good to have people around you who have a lot more than you and people around you who have a lot less than you, because then you get to see if you ever are envious of another person, just look at how much, how much envy another person is of you. I think it's a good panacea for that, you know, for that meditation. So there's a lot of um, social aspects to tzedakah that because of our you know, technology or 21st century, we're able to um, distance ourselves from. And I, wanna, I really want to um, stick to the difficulty of what it means to reach your hand out because you need, how hard that is. And then also how vulnerable you have to be to let that person into your home. So when we do talk about the, you know, the, the values, you know, am I putting myself into poverty because I'm giving too much? Am I compromising my security because I'm letting individuals who I know not into my house? Um, I also want to highlight what I view as the real ikar, the real, the real oomph here, which is the, you know, the distress and destitution of, uh, of what penury does to an individual. Can I introduce another word into the conversation, another Hebrew word? Um, I, I want to talk about kavod. Uh, about honor, about respect. What does it mean to treat someone in a dignified way that shows respect for them? Even if you're saying no, even if someone's coming to my door asking for money, there are lots of ways I can turn them away if in fact I need to for one reason or another. And I'll just share a, a quick story. Uh, a number of years ago, I was in Israel and uh, it was my last day I was taking the midnight flight out, which is what everyone likes to do so that you get a last full day in Israel. Uh, I had to check out of my hotel. I asked them to hold my bag for me. They gave me a claim ticket. It was time for me to collect my bag. Uh, and I was searching in my pocket for my claim ticket, doing my best New Yorker routine, uh, looking everywhere but at the clerk who was working behind the counter. Uh, who this was in Jerusalem, and I know from his his first name, which was on his name tag, that he was not Jewish. He was Arab. I don't know Arab Christian or Arab Muslim. Uh, and he looked at me, digging around, looking anywhere but at him. And he said to me, "Hello." And ever since that day, I make it a point. I will never be on my phone when I'm at the checkout counter. I will always do my best to look at the person in the eye, to greet them. Sometimes they want to get rid of me as much as I might want to, you know, next customer, let's go, right? But it's not going to be on me if it's within my power to deny them the dignity of acknowledging their humanity in that moment. Ultimately, it's a boober I it relationship. He wanted to get his paycheck. I wanted to get my suitcase, but that doesn't keep me from acknowledging his humanity to treating him with kavod, with a sense of respect. And I wanna make sure that when we're talking about tzedakah that those two words are not separated, but are part and parcel of the system that we're trying to address in new ways. That's that's beautiful, Rabbi Jack. I really I really like that. I, I, I feel like I'm, 
remembering the codes of laws that Maimonides writes when he talks about giving to charity, you're not allowed to you know, cross the street to be on the opposite sides of a street of a beggar. You have to look him in the eyes or her in the eyes when you when you dispense the charity. So these are, um, you know, everything about kavod. And kavod, of course, is related to kaved, which is heaviness. And there is that which goes along with those experiences. So we're going to wrap up our discussion on homelessness here. I would like to give both of you the opportunity to give maybe the final word or final thought on this idea of how Jewish people should look at homelessness and charity and and the idea of equity. Um, first, Jack. So I don't want to talk about homelessness. I want to talk about homeless people or people who are homeless. One of the things we're learning now is to put the person first. And we're not talking about the homeless. We're talking about individuals. And interestingly, some of the terminology now is moving from talking about people who are homeless to people who are houseless. It's a, it's a word, but it's a different concept. There are some, uh, some areas we haven't touched on that I think are critical. We focused on the financial need, but we have not focused on the fact that if you look at people who are homeless or houseless, if you look at the rate of mental illness, of addiction, military veterans, and people who are victims of domestic violence, you're gonna cover a broad spectrum of those who are houseless. So this is economic, but it's also something that touches on many other aspects of life in America today. How do we deal with mental illness in our society? Here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, there are not enough beds for those who need to be in inpatient psychiatric facilities. I was talking to someone last week, parent of a child who needs, not inpatient, but outpatient. They were told, well, we can interview you in about three weeks. If a parent is reaching out like that, they're in need. We don't have enough beds. There is still a stigma attached to mental illness. Uh, now, Lancaster County has done a very good job of housing veterans. Not 100%, but they've done a very good job of it. We have a domestic violence shelter. We have a diversionary court program uh, called euphemistically drug court. Uh, it's an unfortunate name, but it's a diversionary program. Someone who agrees to observe the terms of, uh, of a certain program can not only avoid jail, but can avoid can have their uh, record expunged. But there are bigger systems here than just the financial one. And I wanna make sure we at least acknowledge those in this discussion. Those were, um, yeah, that, that definitely broadens our purpose um, and our obligation um, to, an, to an even more heavy degree. I think we'd even talk about individuals who maybe they have homes today, but with the effects of climate change, maybe tomorrow they, their future is not as secure. Uh, I don't really wanna end on such a heavy note. I was hoping to say mo something more along the lines of a blessing. You know, I, I pray and hope that the people in my family and in my community uh, can know how difficult it is to ask for help in this regard without actually having 
to need it because you don't really know how hard it is until you need it. And I think it's, it's important for all of us to empathize and humanize with that. Again, I, I really do think that the efficacy of tzedakah comes from that feeling deep in you when you can have those I-thou relationships as you know, Buber talked about, regardless of whether or not that satisfies the mitzvah component of what it takes to get into heaven, I think that it, it behooves us all to, to feel that way, to walk a mile in another shoes. I'm thinking about just how outdated our standards of, of home, you know, of what, what constitutes a home is, you know, and how I remember reading, maybe this is dated, but 10 years ago in college that China's population density is what the U.S. has today, but they had it 200 years ago or something. And so when you think about, you know, what they can do in, in a one-room apartment, you know, and how that's just been habituated, I mean, you might even say the, the cultural revolution and the concept of property and, and, you know, and how they share a lot, of, a lot of stuff. I think in America, this idea of having your own three acres and a, a fence and I don't want to say that's outdated because the American system of property is what defines the quality of life here. Uh, but I think it's going to be really difficult to give everyone water rights in a place like Phoenix, Arizona, um, where, you know, we only have so many years with that aquifer and what will happen to all those people in all those homes, you know? So uh, one of the things we, di we didn't get to talk about because I put it in either this morning or yesterday uh, was that I'd read some pretty compelling research on how if, if America wants to get real with climate change, uh, we would have to have and an resource depletion because oil, gas, these are the things that cool our air in the summer and heat our air in the winter. We're going to have to do seasonal settlements where people maybe are seasonally camped in areas when there's a robust harvest season and they move to other areas when there's, you know, when there's not. Thank you, everybody, for joining us here at the Sadaka Cast, our inaugural episode. You can follow us at Sadaka Cast on Twitter. Please join us next week where we discuss education and the student loan crisis. Thank you very much. And good night.